Welcome to Kashmir on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashmir Magazine. And tonight we have a very interesting show. Uh, some things you're going to like, and some things you're not going to like too much. I can't help that because you know, we have to tell exactly what's happening within uh, reason. <laughs> Whatever we can say on the air, we'll say. So uh, you're going to hear some interesting things tonight. First, let me start with um, just telling you what we're going to be doing tonight. We have to finish up a little bit from Rabbi Hoffman, Ayar Hoffman, from the we were discussing last week about that issue of whether or not uh, Hashkocha could legislate that you can't put out a certain flag. Uh, that we're going to discuss that briefly. And then I wanted, because we didn't finish that, and I wanted to uh, talk about a problem with olive oil again. And then we want to mention in Houston, we're going all over the country, all over the world, actually. And then we're going to talk about in Houston, the situation that occurred with the bakery. And then we're going to go on to senior residences that unfortunately are becoming not kosher. So this is a very, very diverse uh, section of information. And uh, we just let you know, we finished up the uh, kosher travel guide that's going to press, and hopefully it'll be back next week. So uh, if, if we're going to hope get involved a little bit with the travel and be discussing some of those things in the future. And also I'm let you know that on June 17, Emir Hashem. If we're, everything should be well, we should be doing a special show on music, which ties into uh, the cashmere of music. So I, that's a special show. I have a special guest, and we've been, we've been waiting for that for a while. So that I think will be very interesting, something a little different. Now, today, we're going to start with this thing about the flag again. I'm not really interested in discussing the details, because I don't really know what happened there. Uh, hearing in different versions, and I really don't care what happened. Uh, it, the the principle is what we're discussing. And Rabbi Hoffman, uh, Yaren Hoffman from the Five Towns Jewish Times, um, did a wonderful little piece, as usual, and he discusses uh, five areas which he feels that... Um, you know, open for discussion whether the Kashrus agency has a right to control these things in establishments. So I'm going to read to you the five things, and we're going to discuss a little bit. I'm not going to go through his whole piece. Uh, he has his theories, and I'm not interested in getting into uh, the exact details. It's really not where we have to go. Um, he discusses five areas that we should be thinking about, and when you the Kashmir agency has to deal with on some level. One is a question about the tzniyas of the staff, the way they dress. I love that question because uh, it's, it's very disappointing how little attention is put on that by the different Kashmir agencies. I, I know one Kashmir agency, I don't really keep up with them, so I don't know what they do now, but I remember many years ago, Rabbi Heinemann in Baltimore decided that for Sneas reasons, he wanted the women who are waitresses, who are not, who are not Jewish, to wear um, pants or, uh, I think it was, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but they want that the, 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 at least that they should be properly covered. And he felt that in terms of the Sneas issue, the being covered was the more important than 
the, the idea of wearing pants. I'm sure they weren't uh, tight pants anywhere, but they would have them wear. But uh, it's something that was uh, a decision that he made then. I don't know if it's currently the practice. I have no idea. I've been down in Baltimore many years. But this was his procedure, and uh, he dealt with the, the Sneas issue and came up with a, a shtickle chiddish that uh, the most important part is the actually covering of the body. And, uh, you know, for a Jewish person to think about what they wear, of course, a Jewish lady should dress in a, in a proper way that a woman is to dress. But here, he felt that, uh, that the greater good was done that way. And he addressed the issue. I've been in many establishments from the most religious groups. I won't tell you who. Some of the really religious groups and the people who are working in there are not sneers at all. And it's very, very difficult uh, situation for any uh, man going in there. And, and yet uh, the Hashgach is the top of the line, but they don't legislate anything when it comes to this. So there's a good question. Should, the, should there be legislation of the sneers of the workers? Another one is the non-Jewish music, which is something maybe we will take up on June 17th. Uh, but right now, uh, is it appropriate for Hashgacha to say you can't play non-Jewish music? And then, of course, the, the question will be, you know, uh, how much, how bad, how this, or that. I still remember being at a, at a chasana, and uh, the, it was the second marriage, it was a small crowd, and one of the, uh, the, the it was a one-man band, and he started playing some non-Jewish music. And the people who were there didn't recognize it, and when it was pointed out to them, by that time he had gone on to something else, and, we, and he, was, he was left alone. But he knew what he was doing, and he, and he was doing it intentionally to try to show that he can do this at this very religious wedding, <laughs> And they wouldn't know a thing. And he he was enjoying himself because that's where his mind is at. So obviously, um, you know, this is uh, an issue that's very, very important. And and by the way, he, he only has these five things. I could throw another five things at everybody. He says, removal of controversial entertainment. There was a situation here, I'm not going to go into it. I think all of us know what we're talking about, so I won't even get into it, but it happened to Flatbush with two particular establishments that were, an entertainer was uh, was scheduled, and it was canceled, and then it was rescheduled because of certain threats, and who knows what would have happened to the rabbi and to the owner of the establishment if they had uh, kept to their policy of keeping that person out. So instead, they opted to let the person entertain, and uh, unfortunately, a large number of people attended, even though it was a very inappropriate um, type of entertainment. The person who was entertaining was inappropriate for our neighborhood, and the Hashkocho definitely, in my humble estimation, was correct, and uh, maybe they didn't, I'll say they didn't do it, they didn't, but whatever it was, it almost created a, a legal situation for them, and they backed down. And this is a common problem, especially today, where there's a certain groups of our, our people who are fighting for their rights, and uh, you're not allowed to keep them out, you're not allowed to say no to them, and we're not going to go on to discuss the details of it, but you understand what I'm talking about. And uh, some of these uh, become very, very, very sticky situations for the Hashkochas. 
I mean, you're going to entertain and you're going to give hashkocha on an affair that is inappropriate, gets very, very, very sticky. Number four, he talks about promoting mixing of the genders. In other words, uh, men and women have to be have separate, and uh, and the question is how, in which ways, and what 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 would be appropriate, not appropriate, and this is a, a very delicate issue also. And then the last one he mentioned was the promoting of inter- internet uh, related issues. Some places that where they have uh, they're allowing people to use the internet in the establishments, or they're tuning into the internet and they're playing things from the internet. It's um, it could get a little bit interesting, and uh, these are the questions that he brought up again: the uh, sneers of the staff, the non-Jewish music, con- controversial entertainment, uh, promoting the the mixing of the genders, and promoting internet-related issues. So what? Rabbi Hoffman said is that he views that there's two different kinds of organizations. One is the one where it's an open society and there's five, ten hashgachas, Manhattan, for example. You can have any hashgach in the world can go in, can have a restaurant in Manhattan. And basically it's only a certain number of them, but still in all, anybody could take it. No one says it's their turf. No one says I have from uh, 34th Street to 67th Street is my turf. You can't come in here. So obviously it's completely open and anybody who wants to give Ashkocha can give Ashkocha in Manhattan. There's no one who says it's their territory. So in a, a situation like that, if you as, an, as a cautious organization want to establish rules, whatever they are, call a kavod. You're going to be the machmir, he's going to be the makel, and we'll see who gets the business. <laughs> that's that's the way it works, right? Somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. If it's a nice community that looking for a more tzniyas and a more with a certain chumras in the establishment, so you'll win. If you're looking for a little bit more uh, diversity, a little more excitement, the things that may, that, that may be a little more questionable, you'll lose. That's the way it's going to be. And there's another kind of hashkacha that's the only game in town. And he was referring to, for example, in, in the far away five towns, where there's uh, one hashkacha, it's the five towns, Vadakashvis. There's nothing else that goes in there. You can't get anybody else in there. Maybe uh, there are a few things that are not under the Vad, but basically it's a Vad town. The whole, all five towns and all the environs are all the part of the five towns. And they have to be understanding and open to many different facets of life over there. And he said that in such a place, maybe it would not be appropriate to have a strong hand on these things. That's basically, uh, just wanted to say that much too. He, he brought some beautiful uh, sources, but I don't think we want to get into it. I'll just mention it to you. If you like to follow up on sources and you haven't seen his article, um, he mentions uh, about a, a, a tshuva from Rav Moshe in Eben HaEzer, first volume, number 96. He mentions Mishnei Halachas uh, in, in volume 6, number 108. And he has a few others, near Moshe, uh, volume 6, number 74, in the Square Halachic Journal, Zeri Yaakov, Gilion, number 6. So it was a very, very diverse group of of, of chuvas that he has over there. 
I think that's enough for, for Rabbi Hoffman, although I, I love the man and I respect everything he does because he's very, very thorough in his own hashkacha. He does give hashkachas. And, um, and, and of course, he, he is the, really one of the best watchmen that we have in the kashas field. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is the olive oil situation. We've talked about it in the magazine and on the air, and it's probably old hat for you, but it's always interesting to hear what is happening about olive oil. So here's a new thing. I didn't write down the date, unfortunately, uh, but it's really new. And it's in Germany and Italy. There's a gang, or there was a gang, (laughs) The gang is over. They arrested 24 people and 150 liters of false olive oil. And uh, the the Europol announced it, and in Foggia, in southern Italy, they hopped them. 24 people. What were they doing until now? Listen to this. They were bought, they were taking chlorophyll, you know, the green color there, and beta carotene, and they dyed sunflower oil or soybean oil, and they did this in southern Italy, and they sold it as extra virgin olive oil. And who bought it? Restaurants stores in Rome and northern Italy and in Germany and this thing listen to how much volume they were doing the counterfeit these counterfeiters were supposed to have earned up to 8 up to 8 million euros every year that's real money and what they uh there was <laughs> it seems that in uh, in southern Italy where this gang was mixing the oil according to Europol, they, they were doing it under unhygienic conditions. I don't want to even imagine what that means, but obviously you can get sick from it, aside from everything else. And they were filling these one-liter bottles and five-liter canisters, and every two weeks, 23,000 liters were delivered to Germany, and they were sold there for 5 to 10 euros per liter. So these people were raking it in, and it was all over Germany, in Stuttgart, and Frankfurt, and Berlin, and in Rome, and Italy, and the whole place It was is filled with what these counterfeiters were doing. Oh, so they grabbed them, so you say, oh, wow, it's over. It's not over. There's too much money. It's going to just happen again. It happens every couple of years. There's a major bust like this. And I don't even know if some gang members are under the radar and don't get caught because they they pay off some of the people. I don't know. One thing I can tell you is it isn't over. And uh, anybody who thinks that they're getting uh, extra extra virgin olive oil without uh, very serious uh, oversight is fooling themselves. It just isn't real. Uh, but uh, the, the scary part, I think, was the hygienic issue. And, of course, you see over here that it's obviously they're putting something in. there. Uh, in this case, maybe it's not trafe. Maybe it is. I don't know. The olive, the soybean oil and the sunflower oil, 
those are things that are you know these they're not extra virgin they're processed and then there's carriers and who's who's schlepping it now if these people are doing it themselves these uh these criminals so what kind of protection do we have hope and pray that the hashgachas are on top of this i've talked to them a little bit about it and i I can't tell you for sure who is and who isn't, but I'm sure that everybody is taking this somewhat seriously. And you see that even the extroverts, because a few years ago, everybody said, extra virgin oil does not need hashkacha. Well, there is, there is no extra virgin oil that's guaranteed anymore because there's a lot of this stuff going on. That's the point that I made a few, about a year ago in an article on the olive oil business, and I just uh, was interested in seeing this because it's uh, the numbers are big, and unfortunately it happens all the time. Next, I want to discuss what happened in Houston. Now, I'm going to read to this, this to you part of it, and I'm, I'll tell you why I'm reading it to you. Everybody who's listening to me probably knows. And if you don't know, I'll tell you the story. It's not a big deal. There's a company. It's called Three Brothers Bakery. There were three brothers originally. And this has been around for 70 years. And they just celebrated their 70th birthday. And this is a, a business that's owned by Jewish people who had kosher going all the way back 200 years they were in the kosher bakering business. 200 years, five generations, they were in the business of kosher baking. And after 70 years of this store, has three, actually three outlets, so it's like three stores, after 70 years, they decided to go trafe. What they did was, they didn't decide one, two, three. They had been uh, suffering from Hurricane Harvey, and they lost a lot of money. They had to pay off disaster loans, and they, so they were behind, as they say, and that was the basis for their concern, and they came up with an idea to be open on Pesach. So they knew they were in trouble, but they did it anyway. And I'm going to read to you a little bit about what they said, because I want you to understand the complexity of dealing with people who are not committed to kosher and claim to be kosher. Now remember, the Houston Vod dropped them. Unfortunately, unfortunately, not too far from where I am now, um, uh, about 20 minutes, maybe it's 30 minutes from where I am now. There's a bakery that's open on Pesach, and the rabbi g- gives Ashkacha all year and puts up a little sign for Pesach, a little sign that it's not on Ashkacha for Pesach. And they're open on Pesach, and they're selling uh, holiday cakes on Pesach. Holiday food for Pesach. Now, he doesn't give it much kocha because he says a little sign, this is not on the But right after Pesach, he does it again. In Chicago, they do this trick 
every year. And they, if you'll see the announcements every year, they said we it wasn't under the Arshkocha for Pesach, and anything that was made on Pesach shouldn't be used. And I'm sure that in the bakeries all across America, in the stores that, you know, the, the, these in-house bakeries, I'm sure they're open all Pesach. I don't think they close down. And I'm sure the sign goes up that, uh, you know, we're not certifying it for Pesach and see you in a week, you know, and, and this is what goes on, a sort of a wink, and we go on. For some reason, Houston didn't go for it. And I'm, I mean, I, I think it's very nice, but I want you to get a feel for how the people, this is what's printed in their name, is quotes from them, the, uh, what, how they felt about the entire matter and how the world looks at it. And that will be a segue into our next topic, which is about the senior residencies. So listen to this. What I'm telling you now, I mean, again, so three, three, uh, so that Three Brothers Bakery is now officially Trafe. They've been in a mainstay in Houston for 70 years. They made everything. And they just celebrated that fantastic birthday party of 70 years. And they made a cake that was <laughs> one in history. <laughs> The the woman who, who uh, Janice Jucker, if I'm pronouncing it right, she who owns the bakery, she said, I was more excited about that cake than my own wedding cake. And, uh, you know, they had multi-tiered masterpiece there with three fondant figures and the pictures, I mean, little the little figures, they were little figurines. I'm sure they were not qualify with all the pratham of, a, of an idol, but they, they were little figurines of the original three brothers, Sigmund, Saul, and Max, who, um, you know, who are Holocaust survivors, and all these years, kosher bakers, until right now, we have to pay so. And, uh, and they talk a little bit about an award that they won recently, I'm not going to go into that, but here's what is written up in the local paper there. The Juckers weren't blindsided. They knew they took a risk. You know, being open on Pesach is called a risk. They might lose Hashgacha. But the news delivered during their festivities knocked the wind out of them because they were celebrating the 70th year and they were told, you're no longer kosher certified. And this is what Janice said, I don't know if you ever had a friend before that you really like and they dump you and you get this gut feeling, this awful feeling in your gut, Janice Jucker says. That's the way it felt. I know my husband felt that too. In other words, the rabbis didn't deal fairly with her by dropping the shkocha for being open on Pesach, the rabbis were, you know, abandoning her. It wasn't just losing the kosher license after 70 years. The Jaka brothers had mastered their baking skills in Poland before the war. In uh, I can't pronounce the city. As Morris Jaka's bakery in Krasnow, I mean, pronounce it properly, their kosher history goes back 200 years. 
and they threw in the towel, and they blamed the rabbis for dumping them. Wow. See, that's the problem. They don't see anything wrong in being open. It's just a business decision. And and, and the rabbis dumped them. And, uh, I mean, I, you know, it's, they knew they were doing something wrong, and still they feel that it's the rabbi's fault, that they, that they should have made an exception for them because they have financial problems. This is what she said. We could be permanently closed bakery, or we could be a bakery making Jewish-styled baked goods and employing 65 people. We chose the latter. In other words, no more kosher, just Jewish style. She knows that she has no need for kosher ingredients anymore, and obviously there won't be. There won't be. There'll be some things that'll be kosher. <laughs> they got another, they got it in the bakery, and maybe something that's local, that's what they're buying over there, but they're not going to. And the next part is very, very important. I want you to hear this. Some people moved to town and they decided that because we're open on Saturday, in other words, the Vad continued to give them mashkocha and they were open on Shabbos. This is an unfortunate situation that exists in many places. We have a Jewish-owned bakery here that's open on Shabbos. They gave them mashkocha, but Pesach was something they couldn't deal with. So it, uh, she said the people moved into town that, uh, and we're open on Saturday we're not kosher enough. That's what she looks at it. We're not kosher enough. We had a lot of business for kosher events. That's been slower of late. We kind of feel it's because the not kosher enough people go to these events. In other words, she feels that we, meaning Orthodox people, uh, want you to be closed on Shabbos, and 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 if you open on Shabbos, it's not kosher enough. That somehow is unfair. I don't know. I have an article that's in this issue with the Conscious Magazine. It's not mine. I took it. I took it from Mishpacha Magazine from two weeks ago. If you have a Mishpacha Magazine, read it. One sixty. I'm sorry, a seven sixty, seven six zero. I took the article from them, uh, with their permission, of course, because I fell in love with this doctor. He's a young fellow, Dr. Baruch Fertel. I never met him, never spoke to him. I saw his picture, but I don't know anything about him. But he excited me because he talked about what it meant to do a Shomer Shabbos residency what it meant that he gave up. See, there was one, in, in contradistinction to the three-brother three, three uh, brother bakery, Dr. Baruch Fertel, before he was really a doctor, I mean, he was a doctor already, he was in residency. So he's in Shomer Shabbos residency. He went out of town. They don't know what it's all about. And it seems there was some kind of program that he was involved in, and this is the one Shabbos they said, you must be here. You must be here. I know we get a Shomer Shabbos residency, but this one we have to have you here. And he went around. 
and he offered every single person working there who was not Jewish $1,000 of his money that they should take his Shabbos. He offered them $1,000, and he was earning bupkis then. He wasn't earning big dollars. He was earning bupkis. And whatever the, the amount of the residency, whatever he was going to get for that year, I think you know it's almost nothing because that's, they, they squeeze you out in residency. And he said, $1,000 for that Shabbos. Well, the people in charge, they couldn't take it. They gave it to him. You got it. He's out. He doesn't have to do with Shabbos. You're off. And he went out of his way. You have to read that article. I love that article. And I, and I, I write up why I love it, because it's really a very special thing. It shows, you know, what it means to give up something and care about something, about the Shabbos Kodesh. It shows that we could do it. And it's only money. It's only money. Give it up. Give it up. Get Keep Shabbos. I don't know. I read that article, and I read this article, and I couldn't put the two things together. I mean, this is a family that's been baking kosher for 200 years. And they say the rabbis are saying we're not kosher enough. And, and they just have to be open on Pesach because we just have to, because we need the money. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't get it. Uh, I'm not going to go into everything that they said, but here's what they uh, write up in the article. Becoming non-kosher will take some adjustment. They're brainstorming ideas how to make up for lost revenue, uh, but being open for Pesach will help. That's what they said. They're also considering corporate boxed lunches. So Pesach and the boxed lunches are the same thing. Of course, these are not people who are Shomit Torah mitzvahs, but still in all, you know, there's got to be uh, somebody, somebody's got to care. 200 years, they lost the whole thing. It's so sad. Here's what they wrote. This is the last line. We're survivors here. That's the history of the bakery, as the owner said. What I'm most proud of is that we've kept the legacy of the three brothers going. The fact that we're still here is something to be proud of. I don't know. I wouldn't be proud to give up 200 years of kosher, to give up Shabbos. I'm back there with Dr. Fertel. A thousand bucks, maybe more, whatever I have to spend, I don't want to give it up. It's sad. The next topic is even more sad. But to me, anyway, <laughs> it seems when I'm telling you now, don't, you don't have to believe it, but I got everything here. I got a place for mom, you know, about that place, you know, that organization. I got everybody here. I got a whole pile of stuff. I can't read it to you. It's not enough time. I'm going to just go through a little bit. It seems 
that American Jews have lost it. They've really, really lost it. I've mentioned it here a number of times, and I think everybody knows it anyway. There were literally, and I think that's the number, if I'm wrong, you'll correct me, but I've seen the number, I'm pretty sure it's the number, that at the turn of the century or maybe later on in Manhattan, maybe it was after maybe it was after the war, but in Manhattan, there were 5,000 kosher butchers. I believe that's the number. Check it out. Tell me I'm wrong. Correct my numbers. I don't care. But it was thousands of kosher butchers in Manhattan. Everybody, Jewish, ate kosher. Everybody, Jewish, ate kosher. They may not have been strict Sabbath observers. They may not have been putting on tefillin. They may, they may have done a lot of interesting things. But kosher? Everybody kept kosher. You kept kosher for yourself or you kept kosher for ma and pa because they're going to come and visit. Everybody kept kosher. Or at least almost everybody kept kosher. You'd have to be a real heel not to eat kosher. So now what's happening is, I don't know if you know it, but (laughs) the baby boomers, 10,000 baby boomers, turn 65 every day in the United States. Every day, another 10,000 people, not Jews, I mean, altogether, it's you know, a certain percent of Jews, but 10,000 people in the United States become 65 every day. It's, you know, they're getting, people are getting older. And when people in their 80s and 90s, if they don't have kids taking care of them, they're in these residencies, residences, which are senior residences. Many of them are maintained by Jewish organizations. And there's hundreds and hundreds of people in a place like Long Island. Long Island. Hundreds of people. Listen to what's going on in, in Long Island. Now remember, let's start a little bit here with this one. In Long Island, there's a place called Gerwins, G-U-R-W-I-N. They have 460 residents in Gerwin. Now, remember, Long Island, most of Long Island, you know, most of the people in this are are Jewish. Long Island's packed with it. And this is Gerwin. And this is what's happening in Gerwin. 20 out of 460 residents, e-kosher only. 20 out of 460 residents are eating only kosher. In Parker Jewish Institute, and I know Parker very well because I worked very much with uh, in, in, you know, uh, with some of their mashkichim. I've spent a lot of time on the phone with them and talked a lot about the standards of, of, the, of what's going on in Parker. There's been a lot of interesting discussions we've had, and I know the inner workings of the place. Parker Jewish Institute, you like that word Jewish? 20 out of 525 residents are keeping kosher. 
520 out of 525 residents are consistently buying kosher food, are getting kosher food there from the kosher kitchen. So obviously the vast majority of these Jews are eating treif from the non-kosher kitchen. And still, the because it's a Jewish place, and there are a number of Jews who care about the kosher, they're still keeping a kosher kitchen for them, for that small number. Let me come close to the home. I'm in Flatbush. There's a place called Community. I'm not going to, I don't remember the last, so I, I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit from my memory. I'm not going to be able to tell you what's current. But I remember when I was looking into Community Hospital here, there was some inf- I- issues about them becoming not kosher and then be- and then retaining the kosher. I don't know what they're up to, and I have no idea. But Community at one time was getting rid of their kosher kitchen because it cost them a lot of money. And they told us that there weren't more than 20 people that were interested in kosher here in Flatbush in that little facility. It's a small facility, but it still has got you know much more than 20 people. And a very small percentage of people were interested in kosher. And we're talking about Brooklyn, Flatbush, very high percentage of Jews. And the Mount Sinai that owned the community at that time, and still probably does, told me that they made a decision that it's just not worth it. It's costing them a fortune to do a kosher kitchen. Instead, what they're doing now, or they did then, I mean, say it was a few years ago, about three, four years ago, that they're doing, they did at that time, is to say, we will stop the kosher kitchen and we'll give you a few microwaves and you'll take food put it in the microwave and warm it up and bring it upstairs but we're not cooking anything anymore for kosher and you can get the meals from one of the other uh one of the other mount Mount sinai hospitals where they do have a kosher kitchen and you bring it in through two three times a week and that's good enough and i think they may have put it back in again the kosher kitchen i'm not sure the last the last uh, part of the story but we had a we had a big thing about it on the air a few years ago when this had happened. We're trying to fight it, and we tell people to call. Nothing happened, but eventually, I think it did swing around. In any event, the number of people who were requesting kosher is very, very small. Of course, you're talking about a from neighborhood. There's never going to be an issue. You're talking about certain communities, you're never going to have an issue. You talk about certain owners that are from, they're never going to make an issue. They're always going to have your kosher. And that's what's going to be for many, many, many Jewish people. But there are other many, many Jewish people that did eat kosher all their life. That they're going to be housed in facilities where they're going to have challenges. I wish I had the time to do this thoroughly. And I did one story, this issue on the topic, and I'm preparing for another story in depth. I'm going to start researching it. I, I started researching it today. That's what I'm looking at now. And I'm planning to do a major research into it because it's it's really very, very striking. I just want to share with you another little piece here. If I can find it quickly. I may not get that quickly. <laughs> um, no, I don't have it that quickly. Oh, well, we did the thing about this. Um, yeah, 
No, this is this is a, a strong one here. There's a place in L- St. Louis, Missouri. It's part of the Millstone Campus, which includes the St. Louis JCC Jewish Community Center, the Federation of Jewish Philanthropies there, and the Vod of St. Louis. It's all on the Millstone Campus. This is Jewish life in St. Louis. A new building is going to open with medical facilities, uh, physical therapy, geriatric care facilities, as well as a new cafe. Seniors who are living in the Covenant Place's 355 apartments, which have their own kitchens, can eat in this new bistro that's on the campus there in Millstone Campus if they want to. This is what one of the people there said. I don't have the full name. It just says Denison. I don't know who the person is. It says, we had a big debate Should we be kosher or non-kosher? The compromise was compromise. You're gonna. (laughs) It's either kosher or it isn't. No, here's the compromise. We're gonna have two. There's going to be a dairy kitchen with rabbinic supervision, and a meat one. That's not not kosher. As many as a hundred seniors who pay $3.50 for subsidized communal dinners catered by Cone's Kosher Meat and Deli Restaurant will have to opt for a dairy dinner if they want a kosher meal. Meat meals will be made in-house in the non-kosher kitchen. So now we have these old people, 80s and 90s, with few dollars and they're being forced, you forget about flesh. You forget about chicken. Chicken soup, ancient history. Chullant, forget about it. We're going to give you dairy because meat is going to be trife. Covenant Place, the same place where the, the JCC is, the Federation of Philanthropies over there, and the VOD which is the Vada Kashras and the Vada, the whole Vada ear of St. Louis, the same exact place. And we're taking you and telling you the old people, let them eat trafe. I don't know what's going on there. I didn't speak to anybody in St. Louis. I, don't, I, I plan to look into it. But this is unfortunately a wave, I don't want to say of the future, but there's something that's going on here. And what's really sad is not for you and me, because hopefully we'll never be in these places, and we'll and if if we need help, our children will take care of us, and even if we have to be in a place, it'll only be in a glot 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 kosher place, because there's going to always be glot 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 because there's cool, there's a need for it, whether it's near everybody or far from everybody, you're going to be in a, a kosher facility. Everybody listen to me now is going to be a kosher facility, but that's not the point. I'd li- I want to find this quote. I hope I catch it, because there's so much to read here. But it was very, very interesting to me. And, and that is that, you know, this thing about the food in these places, this was 
this is the future of these 80 and 90 year old people. They, they, they don't have anything else. The only thing they have in their life that they can make a decision about when you're in your 80s and 90s, it's almost the only thing you can control is what you, your food. You don't drive anymore for somebody. I mean, I'm not going to say you have to stop at 80, but I'm saying if uh, that many people in their 80s do stop driving and do stop in 90s, and they can't really control things anymore. The kids are controlling their life. But the one thing you can control is your food. But it's worse than that. I was reading in here, I don't remember if I'm going to find it right now, but th- this one person describes what goes on, and it's a, this is somebody I know, he, he's describing what goes on in the, a facility where he works, and uh, he said that it seems that people who are put into those facilities will sometimes, uh, here, here I got it, this is Rabbi Greenhouse. He's the mashkiach of Gerwin. We mentioned, mentioned before that in the Long Island, in Comac, Long Island. He said, listen, this this is unbelievable what I'm going to tell you. 95% Jewish residents. Did you hear that? In this thing called Faye J. Linder uh, Residences in Comac, which is connected to Gerwin, as an assisted living community that's 95% Jewish residents. Now remember, if you remember the number I gave you for Gerwin, 20 people are eating kosher out of 500 or 400 numbers, whatever the number was. So I don't know if those, probably most of those 95% Jewish residents are not kosher. But listen to what he says, Rabbi Greenhouse. You could cry. I'm telling you, you could cry. He says that the kosher dining helps many Jewish seniors to reconnect to their faith. A lot of people come in, there's a quote, and don't think they're really looking for an orthodox environment. They just want a Jewish environment. In their minds, kosher is not a major part of what they're initially looking for. But kosher is part of what creates the Jewish environment. Listen to this quote. For example, he explains... Many of the women who move in begin to light Shabbos candles on Friday. They begin to light Shabbos candles. People who didn't do it for years and years, they're going back to their observance. You take out kosher from these places, it's not going to affect you and me. But these people, who are hanging on by a, a, a hair onto their Jewish history, their Jewish life. They're, they, they're just, just barely still Jewish. You know, open the store and open the, the bakery on, on Pesach. And they're still holding on. And they go into these facilities. It's kosher, the facility. Rabbi Greenhouse is the mashkiach. Of course, this this article doesn't say mashgiach. It says mashkiach with a K. I don't, for some reason, they don't know how to pronounce it. But still in all, Rabbi Greenhouse, he knows what it's about. He's telling us that they start to observe in a Jewish environment. They go back to their youth. They start to observe. They do. If you would be kosher, then we could 
reach them on some level again. Take away kosher from them, and they're finished. Because they'll eat every all chazer, and they'll have nothing Jewish in their life. Put the rabbi in there, the mashkiah who talks to them. Put a put a, the candle lighting in. Put an environment of Jewish life in there. Put kosher food on the menu. Put give them an opportunity. These are old people. They can't really control everything themselves, and we're letting them down. That's the scary part. We're letting them down. There are some people who are holding on. I'm going to tell you about one fellow. <laughs> he said, he's, this, this fellow said that he, I mean, you know, some people, uh, you know, are thinking what the percentages are, what they want, you know, what we're going to give them, etc., etc. But there are some people who don't think that way. They spend a lot of money. I'll give you an example. Here's an owner, Alexander Ben Israel. He, oh, not the owner, not the owner, I'm sorry. He became the executive director of a 193 unit. It's called Moldau Residences in Palo Alto, California. Okay? It, it's on a pl- place called Taub Koret Center for Jewish Life. He said three years ago they were using packaged, prepackaged kosher entrees. Those things you warm up. They were miserable and mushy. Ben Israel brought the kosher program in-house, added a mashkiach, multiple sets of dishes, meat and dairy dishwashers. Participation doubled to 25 residents. For 12 people. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars for 12 people, 13 people. That's what they did. We had a, this is a quote, we had a philosophical commitment to the residents to offer kosher dining. In other words, we have an ashama. Ben Israel said, it's the right thing to do that people who lived a kosher life all their lives would be able to continue to do it. We call ourselves a Jewish facility and it would feel kind of funny not offering it. I don't know if he's from himself. I don't know what he is. But the name Ben Israel, I'm sure, I hope he's Jewish. In any, in any event, we're talking here. They spent, it, they describe how much they spent. They added on $70,000. For those 12 to 13 people, they added on $70,000 a year for that was extra kosher for them. And they don't charge them extra for it which means they're taking a hit of $70,000 a year for 12 or 13 people. In Jacksonville, there's a place called River Garden. It costs the River Garden $300,000 a year, even with the staff, but that's the cost that they have for kosher. And they, they said like this, a gentleman by the name of Getz, we hold ourselves out to serve the entire community. If Jews no longer connect with their synagogues, at least they're in a place that feels Jewish, does Jewish, and sounds Jewish, even if they're not observant. 
River Garden is the Northeast Florida's only Jewish senior residence and nursing home. But they have a neshama. They care. They care about the people. You know, it's gets this is the same person I just spoke about, who's been the CEO in River Garden for forty years. He says, We don't put kosher on the agenda to be voted on by the residents because it would fail. The residents here love bacon and ham and shrimp and lobster. But we're gonna give them kosher. We're giving them kosher. It's it's an unbelievable thing. We're living in a time where, you know, we have Baruch Hashem, we're spreading Kiruv, we can find a 15-year-old kid to become Shomi Shabbos, NCSY, uh, Lubavitch, but we're reaching out to so many people. Here we have these old people, 80s, 90s, sitting in facilities they're not going to walk out of. This is where, this is their residence. This is where they're going to live until the end. And all over the United States of America, because the populace went down in terms of observance from what it once was, and because it costs a lot for kosher, and because, you'll excuse me, a lot of the Orthodox are not active in some of these organizations, and because of all these things, we've let it slip. We're not giving them kosher. We're not giving these old people a Jewish life. And it's a really a big shame. I hope that anybody listening here could think of some ways to improve the situation. I'm all ears. You can contact me at 718-336-8544. That's our office number, 718-336-8544. You can shoot me an email at kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com. And I, and I would love to hear what you have to say. And maybe we'll be able to put something into, uh, into practice. I'm going to tell you a story. It just happened. It just happened, and I don't want to give away too much of the information. Because maybe even the person's listening. I certainly don't want that person to be offended. But there's somebody who became Jewish, and they didn't put their kids right away into yeshiva. And someone who was who knows them well is trying to get the kids into yeshiva. So they told them, listen, you'll go to this yeshiva. It's not so far from your house, and we'll work it out. Uh, transportation's a bit of an issue, but you'll we'll work it out. So sure enough, they called up the yeshiva and they talked about sending their child there. And not ch- that child, several of their children. They have a number of children and uh, there were two in particular that we're talking about for this particular yeshiva. And they asked them, you know, you know, what we'd like to send our kids here. So the yeshiva said, this is a Kirov yeshiva, by the way. This is not a regular yeshiva. This is a Kirov yeshiva. You would know the name immediately if I told you the name. And they said, $10,000 per child. He said, $10,000 per child, that's $20,000. Do you know what I earn? And he he started to tell him, that's it, it's $10,000 per child. There's a cure of yeshiva, and this person just became Jewish. And the other part of the family, the woman, the wife is Jewish. The kids are Jewish. 
because they've always been Jewish. And they're religious, observant. Show me everything. Never went to yeshiva yet. And now, come to the yeshiva. And the yeshiva says, $20,000? It didn't say, let's sit down and talk about it. They didn't say, let's see if we can have somebody in the community help you. Let's explore this together. Let's talk about it. $20,000. So, the man is not earning that much. $20,000 is absolutely beyond anything he could possibly come up with. I have a good friend. He's in the key of yeshiva as the administrator. And a woman walks in and, uh, you know, talk about getting the kid into the yeshiva and, you know, tells him the tuition, they can't pay it, this, that. Listen, can you pay $50 a month? $50 a month? Can you pay 50, not 10,000 a year, $600 for the year? Can you pay $600 for the year? And she said, yes. Then he said, do you have other children? She said, two others. They're included too. Three neshamas for $600 a year. And this yeshiva turned away two neshamas over the $20,000. Something's not right here. Something is not right. I've had conversations with different yeshivas about this issue, and it's very, very disconcerting. The first answer has to be, yes, we accept your child. Yes, we want your child here. Now, we, together, have a problem. How are we going to come up with the money? What can we do? What could you do? What can I do? Can you help the yeshiva in some way? Can you work for us a little bit? Talk? Can you volunteer a little time? Can you do this? Can you do that? Let's talk. Let's brainstorm. You're a kid of yeshiva. And you turned away the kids because they didn't want to pay $20,000, which he doesn't have doesn't have. If I told you what he does, you would know right away is no way the man could pay the $20,000. We're going to try to work on it. I, I, I threw myself into it and hopefully it will resolve it. And if I do resolve it, believe that, I'll tell you on the radio. Anyway, this is Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Cautious Magazine. If you want to get the Kosher Travel Guide, I certainly recommend it to you. It's 154 pages. It costs $9 if you want to buy just the issue. It's $28 if you want to buy a subscription. And it has 401 cities across the 50 states of the United States of America. 401 cities, not places to go visit to see uh, to, to see things. That I don't include. I probably have 600, 800 for those cities. But that's 401 cities. What is going on in the city? Where to stay, where to daven, where to buy the kosher food, the mikvah, the davening times, 401. And if you'd like to buy it, 